Our scripture text this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts 20, we begin reading from verse 28 through 31. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own son. I knew that after my departure, fierce wolves would come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. One way to describe now what Paul has been doing up to verse 28 in this message to the elders at Miletus who have come down from Ephesus is to say this. He has been bending over backwards to make plain to them that he did everything he could do to save their souls. He labored. He cried. He taught. He shrunk back from no danger, no doctrine, no demand. He has done everything humanly that can be done to take their blood off of his head. And leave it in their own hands before God. So up until now, he's been explaining what he had done and his dedication to this ministry. But Paul knows something that we don't know as well today, I don't think. He knows that you can make false starts in the Christian life. The gun can go off at the Olympics in the 100-yard dash. Bang! And they run for about 10 yards and whistle or the gun goes off again and they all just kind of slow down and mill around and walk back, get their feet in the blocks. That's the way some people begin the Christian life and don't ever go back to the blocks. There is such a thing as a false start. Let me read you a text where I get this idea. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says, I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Bang! Five yards, maybe year, two years, three years, church attendance, and then Satan, bang! They say, oh, oh, okay. You walk off the, walk off the field. Don't finish your course. Paul knows that happens. Therefore, he does not conclude like this. Well, I poured my life out for three years for these people. Gave them everything I've got. I shed tears over them. I taught them day and night. Done? They make it fun. I'm heading to a new place. No problem. They're safe and secure. His attitude is totally different now as we move into these next verses, isn't it? Because the Bible teaches very plainly that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Jesus said, for example, he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 14, 13. 
And so Paul doesn't say, well, fine, I'm done here. That's all that's needed. I got you across the line. The gun went off. I'm taking off to fire the gun in another city. His attitude is totally different because God has ordained that saints persevere unto salvation through the faithful ministry of the elders in the church. And therefore, Paul is very, very burdened to make sure that he leaves in place in Ephesus a group of elders who will continue what he began and bring these people to glory and not let them be drug away by wolves or anything else. Let me try to outline for you now what I see in verses 28 to 31. Here's what I'll do, Lord willing. We'll point out, first of all, the general command that's given to the elders. Number two, we'll show how that command is applied in two directions, one toward the elders themselves and the other towards the flock. And then the third thing we'll do this morning is look at four incentives or motivations that he gives to the elders for the performance of this kind of command. All right? That's that's the goal. Now, as far as I can tell, and this is remarkable, it isn't always this way, nothing has changed between the day Paul spoke this and my speaking it today that would alter its application to Bethlehem. Nothing. Now, sometimes you do have to make alterations as things change. But here, I can't think of a single thing in 2,000 years or anything about the American culture or this congregation or anything that would alter one iota of the application of this text to Bethlehem. If you see something, you can mention it to me afterwards. Verses 28 to 31 Go right into Bethlehem. And therefore, I want us to be thinking Bethlehem as we talk about these elders and about the command laid upon them. All right? The first step in the development then is to go to that general command. What is it? Verse 28 begins, take heed, or your version might say, be on guard. Then drop down to verse 31, which is the last verse in the paragraph, and it says, Be alert or be on your guard. So the paragraph begins and it ends with one basic command. And I would sum it up with uh, wakefulness or vigilance, alertness, morally, spiritually, doctrinally, awake, wide-eyed to what's happening in the church and around the church. This is Paul's way of saying that the church is always a threatened church. Satan never goes on vacation. You believe that? You think there's any time in your day or week or life when you can say, oh, he's on vacation now, so I don't need to have my my, uh, guard up. He doesn't ever go on vacation. Nor does sin ever stop lurking, waiting at the door of your life. For one moment of neglect morally or spiritually or doctrinally. One moment where the guard is taken down and he's in there. Vigilance is the lifestyle of an elder especially, but all Christians as well. 
So that's what's being said here in this general command. The eldership should be the most wide awake, morally, spiritually, doctrinally alert and vigilant group in the church. Now, second step in the development is this. There are two applications of this alertness or vigilance. One to the elders, the other to the flock. Let's take them one at a time. Verse 28 says, take heed to yourselves. Now, that could have two meanings. It might mean, uh, here's a group of elders and they should watch out for each other, yourselves in that sense. Or it might mean each elder look in the mirror of God's word and watch out for his own life, his own moral condition, his own integrity, his own spiritual fervor, his own doctrinal faithfulness. I suspect it means both, that I should be alert and watch over John Piper's heart, and so should the other elders in the church very carefully watch over me and me over them. In fact, we heard one of the speakers who was at the pastor's conference say that he sits down How often did he say this? Once a year, twice a year, Ken? He said he sat down with the staff and he looks them right in the eye and says, have you committed adultery in the last six months? Asks the staff and just has a list of questions. He goes right down so that uh, they could choose to compound sin up with sin and lying. But uh, he just believes he must watch over his fellow elders as well as himself. It's not surprising, is it, that Paul begins this way, that is, with taking heed to yourself, because the first half of his whole message is autobiographical. In other words, he's saying it it matters as much or maybe more that you be a, a kind of person, elders, as that you have a kind of doctrine. So watch over your lives. Robert Murray McChain, a great old... Scottish pastor said, what my people need most from me is my personal holiness. And I think that's right. What you need most from the eldership of this church is their personal holiness. Now, the second application after he says, take heed to yourselves, is to the flock. Verse 28 goes on, take heed to yourselves And to all the flock. Now, notice three things here. One, the church is compared to a flock of sheep. Two, the shepherds are the elders, or the elders are the shepherds. Now, to pick up this word elders, if you haven't been here for a while, you might wonder, where's he getting this word elders? Verse 17 is the answer, okay? It says, go call the elders from Ephesus and bring them down. All right. And now he's talking to these elders and he says, you are over the flock. So the elders are the shepherds, the overseers of the flock. And then thirdly, the duty of the shepherds, elders, is to care for the sheep. Now, let's just read verse 28 very slowly so that you can see those three things. I'll put the parentheses in to point them out. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, parenthesis, so the church is like flock, close parenthesis, in which the Holy Spirit has made you elders overseers, parenthesis, so the elders are the overseers or shepherds of the flock, close parenthesis. Next phrase, to care or to shepherd or to pasture the church 
of God. Parenthesis, so the duty of the elders slash shepherds is to care for the sheep. And if you say, now what does care for the sheep mean? Doesn't it come to your mind what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus said, you love me, Peter? You say, you know I love you. And Jesus said what? Feed my sheep. Feeding is one of the first requirements of a shepherd. And that means teaching. And then you can think of other examples. Just a verse later, we're going to read about wolves who come in to decimate the flock. Another job of the shepherd, therefore, is what? Protection. So caring for the church of God. Church is a flock. The elders are shepherds. The duty of shepherds is to care for flock. Now, if you were to ask right now, well, where, where does the pastor fit in? Who are you, Pastor John? We don't call you elder. It's written out there on the sign. Pastor, where do you fit in here? The answer is real, real simple. Pastor is a Latin word. We just bought it, took it over, and it means shepherd. Don't even have to change a letter. It means shepherd. Therefore, pastor equals shepherd equals elder equals overseer. These are all the same office in the church. They're not separate offices. You can't find any distinction between these names in the New Testament. In fact, you can find in 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 15, evidences that they are the same group of people. So if you say, who are you? I would say, I'm an elder, I'm an overseer, I'm a shepherd, I'm a pastor, and they all mean the same thing. And I'm not the only one. In fact, in the New Testament, there is no single pastor church anywhere to be found, period. It didn't exist in the first century, evidently. One of the texts that makes that clearest is uh, Acts 14.23, where Barnabas and Paul are coming back to Antioch after their first missionary journey, a few months after they established the churches in Antioch and Perga and Iconium and so on. And uh, it says in verse 23, And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they believed. Now, these are brand new churches. And probably small. And not one of them were given one elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. They're all given two, at least, plural. There are no single pastor churches in the Bible. That's good news. Because the duty that is laid upon the elders in this verse 28 is staggering. It says... Take heed to all the flock. Now, let's just dwell on this word all for a minute. Take heed to all the flock. Not just the healthy sheep, but the sick sheep. Not just the strong, but the weak. Not just the responsive, but the unresponsive. Not just the faithful, but the wayward. All the sheep. You must take heed to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me read you. A section from the, probably the most significant book that's ever been written outside the Bible with regard to the pastoral ministry written by Richard Baxter called The Reformed Pastor. This is what he said about this text. It is, you see, 
all the flock or every individual member of our charge. To this end, it is necessary that we should know every person that belongs to our charge. For how can you take heed to them if you do not know them? Doth not a careful shepherd look after every individual sheep? A good schoolmaster after every individual student? A good physician after every particular patient? Paul taught his hearers not only publicly but from house to house. And in another place he tells us that he warned everyone and taught everyone in all wisdom that he might present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. Many other passages of Scripture make it evident that it is our duty to take heed to every individual of our flock. Now, what does that say about Bethlehem? We have a thousand members, give or take 20. I'm not sure what's left after last Wednesday, but um, about a thousand. I don't begin to know all of their names. Now, learn them. I don't see them for a while and I forget them. I don't begin to know their spiritual condition individually and how it's going at work and how it's going with the spouse and how it's going with the kids and whether they have any struggles with the faith, how it's going financially. And you can believe then, if you've been following at all, the struggles that we've been in trying to discern the staffing configuration of the next years. You put that together with this text, and uh, you can see why Noel and I have done some very deep heart-searching about the nature of the ministry here. I suppose one answer would be, in view of the rigor of this text to say that um, a big church like Bethlehem should have enough pastors slash overseers slash shepherds slash elders so that every member is known well by one of them at least. They know name, they know family condition, they know spiritual maturity, they know how it's going at work. That's asking a lot. How many people can you do that for, do you think? Listen to this, this paragraph here that brings Baxter's treatment to a conclusion. He says, Oh, happy church of Christ, were the laborers proportioned in number to the number of souls, so that the pastors were so many, or the particular church is so small, that we might be able to take heed to all the flock. I really just hold out my hands to you asking for sustained prayer in these next weeks as we try, along with the group that's working on the eldership, to design what kind of leadership could make this text a reality at Bethlehem. It isn't now, and that's not good. And so, please pray. One young man came up to me after this first service and was so encouraging. He said, you know, I'm not an elder. I I doubt that I will be one. 
anytime soon. But these series of messages have been so good for me because like nothing else I've ever seen, they've given me a checklist for how to pray for the leaders of the church. And that's really one of the effects I hope that the messages are having. Let me summarize where we've been so far. The text gives a general command to the elders of the church. And the command is, be alert, be awake, take heed, have your eyes open, be vigilant in your lives. And, and then the next step in the development was, let that be applied to yourselves and let it be applied to all the flock. Now, for the rest of the message, here's what I want to do. I see in this text four powerful incentives for us to get about that work as elders. And I want to just lay those before you. When I look at these uh, incentives or motivations, I'm convinced more than ever that the eldership, pastorate, shepherding, overseer role is not a mere job. It's not a profession alongside lawyer, doctor, teacher, computer specialist, engineer. It's not just another profession. And you'll see this when you, when you see the kinds of incentives that are given here for this work. Number one, the first incentive to pour ourselves out in this work of taking heed to the flock is that the flock we serve, cost God his own blood. Let's look at the end of verse 28. To care for the church of God, that's our duty, to care for the church of God, which he obtained, and literally, with his own blood. Or it could be with the blood of his own, and then the RSV takes that to mean his own son, which is all right. Either way, it's God's blood. Now, I think Paul means for those elders to be shocked right here. This is powerful stuff. He says, if God took this ramshackle, sinful, unworthy, unbelieving body and brought them and made them his own at the cost of the blood of his son, then surely you elders should do the same. Namely, pour out your life's blood for this people. If he died to make them holy, you die to make them holy. If he died to, to win their faith, you be willing to die. If he stayed up late, you stay up late. If he got up early, you get up early. Suppose uh, I'm a single dad now and I've got four kids. Noel's dead. She'd gone a year and uh, one of you invites me and the boys to go deep sea fishing with you in the Gulf of Mexico, you and your spouse. This brings back fond memories when I was a kid. We did this almost every summer, one time, every summer. And you're out in the boat trolling for a little while, and the boat stops. It's going to open back in like this, you know, only wider. And uh, the littlest boy, his name is Barnabas, happens to be Barnabas, he's over the boat looking like this, and the waves tip the boat, and he loses his balance and just plunks right into the water and disappears beneath the water, 10 miles out from shore. 
Well, I see him, and like I did one time at a lake when this happened, I just went boom, right down on top of him, you know. I couldn't see him. And ten suspenseful seconds. And I come up out of the water, I've got him. And he's sputtering around. I push him back over the side, and just as I'm ready to climb in, a shark cuts out of nowhere and just rips my side off. And they pull me up over the side, and you're ten miles away from anything like a doctor, and I'm bleeding to death. And the last thing I say, looking up into your face, is, take care of the boy. Take care of the boy. I'm gone. That's powerful, isn't it? That's what Jesus did. He took this church, I mean us, people like us, Took this church up in his arms and Satan just ripped him in half. And as he died, he hands the church over to the elders of, and he says, take care of my child. Take care of my bride. Take care of my boy. So incentive number one is about all you need, I think. This motley crew of people like you and me, were bought at infinite expense to the Son of God. Second incentive, elders have been chosen by God for their work. They didn't choose themselves. Let's read verse 28 from the beginning. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I read that fast. I've got to go back and read it slow because you'll miss it. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, now slowly, in which the Holy Spirit has made you or set you or appointed you overseers. Who put John Piper in in this role? Did Bethlehem, by its call, did I, by my choice? Well, there is a sense in which both of those are true, but that's not the main thing, not if this text makes sense. The main thing is God, the Holy Spirit, put me here, and not just me. Now, let's just consider these two incentives alongside each other. These are the kind of incentives that make the eldership, pastorate, shepherding, overseer, so utterly different from just another profession. We are serving a people who are bought by the blood of God's Son, and we are serving at the call of God's Spirit. And those two things together are powerful incentives. I mean, the church of Jesus Christ is not an ordinary society. This is no club This is no human organization. If you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ formed at Bethlehem, you are part of a people purchased by the blood of God for the Son of God. And the eldership of this church is not put here by any human decision merely. It is put here by a divine choice of the Holy Spirit. And when those two things come together, You have a conception of glory. And when you sing that hymn, the apple of God's eye, it'll have a whole new meaning for you, perhaps. 
The church is no small, simple human organization. The third incentive I see in this text for pouring out our lives as the eldership on behalf of the flock is that great danger always awaits the church. Great danger always awaits the church. Let's read verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It'll be very cruel. And then here's the worst part of all. From among your own selves, he's, he's referring to the elders there, I think. From among your own selves will rise up men twisting, speaking perverse or twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's serious business, isn't it? Paul says, when I'm gone, this is what's going to start to happen. And if you want to see what it looked like when it began to happen, read First and Second Timothy. They're already there in First and Second Timothy. That was written, Timothy was in Ephesus. That's why that's relevant. When those two letters were written to him, he's in Ephesus. So the incentive of vigilance here is danger lurking on the horizon. Now, Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. If you ask, where does it say sheep's clothing here? It says it in the words, they will come from your own selves. That's sheep's clothing. Now, what do you do to guard against wolves in sheep's clothing? They look like sheep. They've learned to ba, ba, ba real good. Now, what do you do to protect yourselves? Jesus has lots to say about behavior. You'll know them by their fruit. But he, let me point in another direction because this focus here is doctrinal. And I think there are symptoms of Wolves in the making that you can watch for in me and the other elders in this church. You can watch for. Here's the one feature I want to point out. The reason I point it out is because I've experienced it over the last 20 years since I left seminary. I had lots, a lot of friends in seminary who looked as evangelical and biblically faithful as I did. And now some of them are teaching in universities. They don't give a rip about Scripture. And they don't uh, believe anymore. Or they call themselves biblical and they have turned biblical teachings inside out to make them things, make them mean things that nobody ever dreamed they could mean. Now what happened? And I've watched friends do this. Move from biblical faithfulness to radical liberalism. And I've watched an institution or two or three move in this day and some that are on their way. And it's the same feature whether it's institutional or whether it's personal, and it goes like this. I have seen an emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed. I worked about an hour on this sentence now, so don't think I'm throwing out words here. An emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed. And in its place, 
an emotional fascination and preoccupation with what is new and fashionable and relevant as the world judges relevancy. Now notice, I haven't said a word about believing any particular doctrine or rejecting any particular doctrine. I'm talking about an emotional, intellectual, personal orientation towards things once for all delivered to the saints. Jude, verse 3, there's only one chapter in Jude, says, Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is a kind of person in the church who has no emotional resonance with that at all. You're around them. Let me try to say it a different way. You're around them and you get the impression that they don't have any deep longing to bring their mind and their heart into conformity to fixed biblical truth once for all delivered. It isn't their glory to go back to the spring. Instead, when you're around them, you get the feeling that what they're trying to do with the Bible is unfix it, to make it fluid, to make it undefinable, to, to put it at a cultural distance, to say that it's uh, really inaccessible and it's therefore open to all kinds of new trends and new interpretations. There's just an emotional atmosphere of, good night, where is the delight? Where is the humility? Where's the submissiveness? Where's the reverence for the Word of God? It's gone. And they might still be affirming all the orthodox doctrines. But they are wolves in the making by virtue of their orientation towards the Bible. I ate dinner with one of them this week. Not at Bethlehem. But from another church. And I just sat there thinking, what is it about this person? He's already so liberal in so many of his views, so detached from what the Bible so plainly says and moving in that direction or up here that direction, I suppose. What is it? And I detected what it was again, as I've seen many times. Instead of an initial sweet Psalm 119 savoring of the word of God, like sweeter than honey to my mouth. I get up at night in the watches to, to dwell on your word. I stop seven times in the day to savor the word of God. Your word is my life, my joy. Nothing like that. Instead, we can't really understand that. Well, that's cultural. Well, that's a long time ago. Well, we live in the 20th century. Well, that was before the scientific revolution. And you say, what's going on here? This is a very strange attitudinal makeup. It's a, it's a wolf in the making. And so you watch for it. Watch for it in the mirror. And watch for it in Sunday school teachers. And watch for it in, in the eldership of this church. And when you see it, sound an alarm to the person in whom you see it. Well, that's incentive number three. Danger lurks on the horizon for the church and uh, the form in which that danger has appeared inside the church, in my experience, over the last 20 years, watching friends move away from the Bible and watching institutions move away from the Bible, 
is the replacement of a delight and emotional attachment to the grand old truth once for all delivered in the scriptures with a new emotional enchantment with the new, the trendy, and what's relevant in the eyes of the world with a kind of distancing yourself from the specific affirmations of Scripture. Finally, number four, the last incentive. It's just very brief. It's found in verse 31, and it doesn't surprise us because Paul returns to what he had talked about now, the first half of the message, namely his own life. So the the fourth incentive is his own personal example, and personal examples are very powerful, aren't they? Listen to this one. He says, therefore, be alert. So there's your general command again. And now here comes the last incentive. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Ceaseless labor, day and night, personal admonition, passion with tears. I I can just hear him now talking to me. And he's saying, he's looking over my shoulder and he's saying, now, John, I've worked with you for three years, brother, and I'm going and you'll never see me again until we see Jesus together. And I want you to be faithful to this church. I want you to give your life for this church. And uh, the way I want you to do it is the way I did it. You remember? Day and night. I got up about dawn And from about 5 to 10 in the morning, I was in the hall of Tyrannus because he didn't use it from 5 to 10. And then from about 10 until sundown, I worked on my tent so I wouldn't have to burden anybody. And then from sundown, I went from house to house every night. Now, I know I wasn't married, and you're married and have four kids. But look, John, we're talking about the apple of God's eye here for whom Jesus was willing to allow himself to be ripped to shreds. Don't be like those seminarians who are coming out of the schools today making sure that they know they got the right pay and they got the number of days off and they get the right vacation. You're not going to ask more than 40 hours a week and me and my wife have our own time and get that mentality out of your mind entirely. You lay yourself down. You're not in a profession. You're in a divine calling for a blood-bought people. You exist for one reason, the holiness of Bethlehem Baptist Church and the ingathering of the elect in this city. That's all you exist for. And the other elders in this church. Let's pray. Maybe you should just take a minute in silence. We're all so different, and we're hearing this in different ways and applying it in different ways ways to our lives and I'm sure God is speaking to you I I told the people who were up there praying when I left a good group praying in the room I said something's going to happen in this service because you're here and I'm not sure what that is but maybe it'll happen right now as we just bow in silence and all of us pray and deal with the Lord for just a minute